The Business on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you. Now, have a listen to this. Whose land is this? My land. Well, 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 our war hero has arrived. You made a good choice coming back here. Those days are the finest, wealthiest, and most beautiful people on God's earth. They outsmarted everybody. They have the say. Who gets the oil? Son, I got a question. You like women? <laughs> That's my weakness. <laughs> It's a story of the systematic murder of the Osage Native American tribe for their oil wealth, a story that Martin Scorsese has turned into a movie called Killers of the Flower Moon based on a book of the same name. And it's a compelling story. In the 1870s, the Osage had been driven from their lands to a reservation in Oklahoma described as broken and utterly unfit for cultivation. Decades later, they discovered that the reservation sat on top of some of the biggest oil deposits in the US. Each member of the tribe had their own share in that wealth. Some were murdered for that share as the movie sets out, but their money was taken from them in other ways too. It's something our next guest, Rachel Adams Heard, has been investigating as a reporter for Bloomberg and for her In Trust podcast on the topic. She went there and she examined the multiple ways the Osage were parted from their wealth. Rachel, the, the wealth of the Osage tribe at the time, early 20th century, into the 1920s and 30s attracted a lot of attention. Uh, There were stories saying that they had become the wealthiest people per capita in the world. There were stories of the Osage arriving at ceremonies in private airplanes with grand pianos being tossed out on lawns. Were the Osage tribe incredibly wealthy at that time? They were incredibly wealthy, but I think what's so important to know about the media coverage at the time is that These Osage families, they were doing things and spending their money like any wealthy person would. It was dramatized the way it was across U.S. mainstream media because there was this narrative that Native Americans shouldn't have that. And it was that narrative that became so damaging and that really almost invited this graft into Osage County that later became incredibly violent. The question of violence really erupts quite quite early on in this saga because those mineral rights uh, and head rights that the Osage uh, tribe had, they couldn't be just, you know, handed over. They had to be inherited. But there were ways in which people would try to get their hands on them, which resulted in uh, a lot of killings and bloodshed. You had white men basically conspire to marry into Osage families and then kill off family members so that those oil rights called head rights were basically funneled into single ownership and that they would become the eventual owner of those shares. Um, And so that's kind of the most um, well-known example of this sort of scheme. But it's important to note that there were all sorts of ways that outsiders were coming in and trying to take Osage money for themselves. This was just kind of the most notorious because it did eventually get the attention of the FBI after, of course, the Osage Nation had to ask for them to come in to investigate. And those killings, I think, form a big part of the film, the Martin Scorsese film with Leonardo DiCaprio, which is coming out shortly. But in your podcast series, where you did a lot of investigative work, you looked really closely at all of the other ways that the white locals in that community really ripped off the Osage. And it was incredible how inventive 
they were in coming up with ways of ripping them off. Yeah, that was what was so surprising to me is just how widespread some of these arrangements were and and that they were really enabled by policies that the U.S. government had in place for Native Americans like the Osage. Um, one of the ones that was most striking to me was the guardianship program. Uh, Osages were deemed incompetent to handle their own affairs. And that's the actual word that was used at the time, incompetent. And they had to have these guardians, who were usually white men, put in charge of their financial affairs. This meant that they couldn't spend their own money without asking for permission to do that. This is for things like cars or for schooling, um, for health purchases. And the guardianships, what we were able to see doing all of our research was that a lot of times these guardians were lending out their Osage wards money to their friends and business associates. And that a lot of them were using that borrowed money to buy Osage land. So in some cases then, the person appointed guardian might be the least beneficial person for the Osage person because there'd be a local businessman and they might own a store and they would rip off in the prices that they would charge the Osage locals. They would also administer wills when Osage people died and they, they even uh, ramped up the bills on funerals as well. You found evidence of all of this. They were really financially screwing them several different ways. Yeah, what's so striking is just this, the levers that were available to pull that basically just worked to transfer money from Osage families to white ones. Um, it was on all sides of all sides of it. You could owe, you know, $2,000 to the local trading post at the time, which is an insane amount of money uh, if you adjust it for inflation. You also, you know, had to ask that same person sometimes for permission to spend your own money. When it came to violence, uh, can you tell us a bit about just the scale of that violence and murders? I mean, there, there were bombs, there was poison. It got really, really horrific. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the examples that come up in Killers of the Flower Moon, which are really the most dramatic ones because you have situations, like you mentioned, where a house was literally blown up or someone is shot in the back of the head or poisoned. Um, it's just horrific violence and incredibly in your face. And it's striking how long it took to be able to put just one man away for this. And the, that he was later pardoned makes it even more egregious. Um, and so you have these incredibly violent examples. But the reason that we really wanted to do the reporting for In Trust was because there were so many nonviolent examples that were, you know, legal or financial in nature that worked to move just as much, if not more, money out of Osage hands, but that never really got that same amount of attention because it wasn't murder. And and when you look at how the land ownership today and how many Osage families no longer have those original allotments, understanding those schemes from what we heard from people were just as important as understanding the circumstances of those horrific murders. I think of an original 2,229 headrights or almost sort of like shares or parts of shares in, in the oil revenues. Over 500 ended up in non-Osage hands. How much of a an ongoing bone of contention is that? And I, I know some people in that part of the world are talking about a mechanism by which this would be returned. Yeah, I mean, that was what really stood out to me is 
um, we heard about all of these head rights that are held by non-Osages, and we were really interested in a share that was owned by one particular family today, which is the Drummond family, a very prominent ranching family in Oklahoma. And so we traced back just three-fourths of one head right, and we found a situation where an Osage man, woman was basically abused by two white men, the Pope brothers. Um, for her money and her and her oil wealth, and and that they later got access to her family's head right shares and sold them to uh, the Drummonds, and and all we had to do was trace three fourths of one share back. So it really made me interested to figure out if there's any way to see what happened to the rest of those 500 head right shares. Where did they come from? How were they transferred? And that's a question that's really hard to answer because there's just a huge gap in the historical the historical record. But uh, today, it's very much an active topic. Just last week or the week before, the Oklahoma Historical Society said that they want to try to give their head right shares back to the Osage Nation. Um, there's legislation that is currently being worked out to see if it can be made easier. So I, I'm definitely interested to see how that shakes out because this is a huge topic on the Osage Reservation and something a lot of people feel very strongly about. The Drummond family, who ended up through ranching and various other business interests owning about 130,000 acres there, w- one of them uh, today is the, the State Attorney General. When you go back to their origins, w- where were they from originally? So originally, this is a family from Scotland, um, and they actually, they're, they're kind of patriarch in Oklahoma, Frederick Drummond. He moved to the Osage Reservation before allotment, before 1906. Um, and so he was really well positioned to uh, capitalize on the wealth that came in when oil production took off. Um, One of their kind of most well-known enterprises back in those early days was the Hominy Trading Company, which we've heard it referred to as the super Walmart of its time. Um, This is a place where you could buy caskets, where you could buy bread, where you could buy farming and ranching supplies. Um, And it was that money made through the store that enabled them to start their initial land buying. Um, But that very quickly ramped up and they were able to acquire tens of thousands of acres. And that only grew over the coming decades. It's all relatively recent history. Are the Drummond family today aware of their their full history? For the podcast, you, you, you wanted to try and uncover more about that background and talk to some of the family members today. Yeah, to their credit, uh, we spoke to several members of the Drummond family who were actually really curious to hear um, what we had found. I mean, not very many people get months and months of their lives just to dig into their own family history. So I'm well aware that I, I might have been able to spend a lot more time time looking through this than even they were. Um, But, you know, in general, we heard them say that they uh, either weren't aware or um, had always heard that their ancestors were Osage guardians because they were trusted by their Osage neighbors. They hadn't heard a lot of kind of the the negative sentiments toward their family that we had heard from from Osage citizens today. And, And when I presented them with some of the, you know, documents that we had uncovered, um, Gentner Drummond, who's the, the current attorney general, he said, you know, well, this only tells one side of the story and I can't go back and ask my ancestors for their side of the story. So in general, that was their response to, to our reporting. But I mean, I, I'm definitely appreciative that they took the time to at least, you know, see what we were uncovering and talk talk 
through some of it with us. Rachel Adams heard Bloomberg investigative reporter, your podcast, which is really, really well worth listening to. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a great series. It's called In Trust. Rachel, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Thanks so much for having me.